Welcome to the latest edition of your quarterly magazine for September 2023, produced by Wyndham and Attleborough Talking Newspaper. Hello, I'm John, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this selection of feature items taken from the Eastern Daily Press, EDP Magazine, Wyndham Magazine, and other sources. The editor was Peter, and the sound technician was Duncan. Your other readers for this edition are Mark, Ruth, and Maria. In the first section of the recording, we have Why Norfolk is the Treasure Capital of England by Owen Sennett. Why Eating Alone Shouldn't Be Encouraged in Any Restaurant by Andy Newman. Eat Apples and Blackberries to Reduce the Risk of Frailty. When the King Came to Visit Norfolk by Derek James. Restoring the Wyndham Town Sign by Neil Haverson. Paying Your Cigarette Cards Right by Mike Hicks. Life at Wyndham's Britain Brush Factory by Derek James. The Uses of Valerian by Grace Corn. Actor Brian Hewlett celebrates over half of a century in Ambridge. And we conclude this section with another contribution from dog behaviorist Julia Collins. And the first item will be read by Mark. Why Norfolk is the treasure capital of England, and where there could be more, by Owen Sennett. Norfolk has been confirmed as the treasure capital of England, according to the latest statistics. More finds were discovered in the county than anywhere else in 2022, with 98 items confirmed as treasure by the coroner's office. And it is not the first time Norfolk has held this title, having topped the list almost every year since 1997. But why is there such an abundance of artefacts found in the county? And what is defined as treasure? Under the Treasure Act 1996, treasure is owned by the Crown when found, and a person who finds an object they believe to be treasure must notify the relevant authorities within 14 days. The definition of treasure has been expanded recently, which has increased the number of finds that can be categorised as such. To be classified as treasure, it must be an object of historical importance at least 200 years old and made of metal, according to the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. It is hoped these changes will mean more museums can acquire important historical discoveries made in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. What has been found? One of the earliest known settlements in Northern Europe has been discovered at Haysborough Beach, which revealed that ancient humans lived in Britain 800,000 years ago. When it comes to treasure, you have to wait until about 3300 BC, the Early Bronze Age, when there is an explosion in material culture made of metal. In Norfolk, a number of Bronze Age boards have been found, particularly in West Norfolk. Restoring the Wyndham Town Sign by Neil Haverson. Paying your cigarette cards right by Mike Hicks. 
Life at Wyndham's Britain Brush Factory by Derek James. The Uses of Valerian by Grace Corn. Actor Brian Hewlett celebrates over half of a century in Ambridge. And we conclude this section with another contribution from dog behaviorist Julia Collins. And the first item will be read by Mark. Why Norfolk is the treasure capital of England, and where there could be more, by Owen Sennett. Norfolk has been confirmed as the treasure capital of England, according to the latest statistics. More finds were discovered in the county than anywhere else in 2022, with 98 items confirmed as treasure by the coroner's office. And it is not the first time Norfolk has held this title, having topped the list almost every year since 1997. But why is there such an abundance of artefacts found in the county? And what is defined as treasure? Under the Treasure Act 1996, treasure is owned by the Crown when found, and a person who finds an object they believe to be treasure must notify the relevant authorities within 14 days. The definition of treasure has been expanded recently, which has increased the number of finds that can be categorised as such. To be classified as treasure, it must be an object of historical importance at least 200 years old and made of metal, according to the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. It is hoped these changes will mean more museums can acquire important historical discoveries made in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. What has been found? One of the earliest known settlements in Northern Europe has been discovered at Haysborough Beach, which revealed that ancient humans lived in Britain 800,000 years ago. When it comes to treasure, you have to wait until about 3300 BC, the early Bronze Age, when there is an explosion in material culture made of metal. In Norfolk, a number of Bronze Age boards have been found, particularly in West Norfolk and the Wash area. More recently, 40 axes and axe fragments were found at Great Melton, near Norwich, by metal detectorists Trevor Radley in August 2019, which were confirmed as treasure in March 2023. Why Norfolk is England's treasure capital? Archaeology expert Andy Hutchinson, who is a research fellow at the UEA, said Norfolk was once a very populous part of Western Europe prior to the Roman invasion. It was a very important area and developed lots of wealth from agriculture from the early to Middle Bronze Age. By the medieval period, this came to be reflected in the number of churches built. With lots of people, Wealth and churches, it is inevitable for there to be lots of treasure here. The importance of agriculture continues to this day, with East Anglia known as the UK's breadbasket. According to Mr Hutchinson, this means budding metal detectorists are drawn to the rural farmland of Norfolk and often scour recently harvested fields looking for treasure. With more metal detectorists trying their luck in the county, it means there are inevitably going to be more finds than elsewhere.
is there more waiting to be discovered? Since 1997, when the Annual Treasure Act report began, there have been 1,946 finds in Norfolk. And for UEA archaeology expert Andy Hutchinson, there could be a lot more to discover as the region's geology continues to change. He said, I suspect there is still lots of treasure to be found and more discoveries are being made in places like riverbanks where the geology has changed, meaning new deposits have become uncovered. In coastal areas, the impact of erosion is likely to uncover more treasure, while it is in the wash area. More recently, 40 axes and axe fragments were found at Great Melton near Norwich by metal detectorists Trevor Radley in August 2019, which were confirmed as treasure in March 2023. Why Norfolk is England's treasure capital? Archaeology expert Andy Hutchinson, who is a research fellow at the UEA, said Norfolk was once a very populous part of Western Europe prior to the Roman invasion. It was a very important area and developed lots of wealth from agriculture from the early to Middle Bronze Age. By the medieval period, this came to be reflected in the number of churches built. With lots of people, wealth and churches, it is inevitable for there to be lots of treasure here. The importance of agriculture continues to this day, with East Anglia known as the UK's breadbasket. According to Mr Hutchinson, this means budding metal detectorists are drawn to the rural farmland of Norfolk and often scour recently harvested fields looking for treasure. With more metal detectorists trying their luck in the county, it means there are inevitably going to be more finds than elsewhere. Is there more waiting to be discovered? Since 1997, when the Annual Treasure Act report began, there have been 1,946 finds in Norfolk. And for UEA archaeology expert Andy Hutchinson, there could be a lot more to discover as the region's geology continues to change. He said, I suspect there is still lots of treasure to be found and more discoveries are being made in places like riverbanks where the geology has changed, meaning new deposits have become uncovered. In coastal areas, the impact of erosion is likely to uncover more treasure. While it is tragic for the people who live in these areas that are losing their homes, it could lead to some significant archaeological discoveries to be made. Why Eating Alone Shouldn't Be Discouraged in Any Restaurant by Andy Newman, EDP, 9th of the 8th, 23. Anyone who is single or who just likes doing things on their own occasionally will know just what a disadvantage they face, whether it's being charged swinging single room supplements when going on holiday or paying more during their weekly shop because buy one get one free offers don't really work when you only want one in the first place. This is despite the fact that some 8.3 million people live alone in the UK which is around 15% of the population, or 30% of all households. It doesn't seem fair that there is such a penalty to pay for doing things on a solitary basis. 
So it's understandable that there was such an outcry when top London restaurant Hotel Café Royal announced recently that it would, in effect, charge single diners twice as much as everyone else, imposing a minimum spend equivalent to what two people would pay for the same meal. Now, you may be thinking that what happens at a £195 a head two Michelin starred eatery in the capital has no bearing on our lives here in East Anglia. But the fact is that it never takes long for such innovations to filter down to a more prosaic level. Café Royal's argument is that a solo diner takes up a table which could otherwise be occupied by two bill-paying people. They say that if their restaurant is full of tables with just one person eating, they cannot break even. And to be fair, they are keeping a small number of tables available for solo diners at each service, where the one for the price of two rule will not apply. Running a restaurant in the current climate is far from easy, and for small establishments with limited space, maximising the revenue from each table is an absolute necessity in order to meet soaring costs. What is interesting is the level of backlash which this announcement has caused. You might think that for most people, eating out is a sociable activity, And the concept of spending an evening at a table for one, feeling like Billy No Mates, would not be a popular one. But no, it seems that... Tragic for the people who live in these areas that are losing their homes. It could lead to some significant archaeological discoveries to be made. Why Eating Alone Shouldn't Be Discouraged in Any Restaurant by Andy Newman, EDP, 9th of the 8th, 23. Anyone who is single or who just likes doing things on their own occasionally will know just what a disadvantage they face. Whether it's being charged swinging single room supplements when going on holiday or paying more during their weekly shop because buy one get one free offers don't really work when you only want one in the first place. This is despite the fact that some 8.3 million people live alone in the UK which is around 15% of the population, or 30% of all households. It doesn't seem fair that there is such a penalty to pay for doing things on a solitary basis. So it's understandable that there was such an outcry when top London restaurant Hotel Café Royal announced recently that it would, in effect, charge single diners twice as much as everyone else, imposing a minimum spend equivalent to what two people would pay for the same meal. Now, you may be thinking that what happens at a £195 a head two Michelin starred eatery in the capital has no bearing on our lives here in East Anglia. But the fact is that it never takes long for such innovations to filter down to a more prosaic level. Café Royal's argument is that a solo diner takes up a table which could otherwise be occupied by two bill-paying people. They say that if their restaurant is full of tables with just one person eating, they cannot break even. And to be fair, they are keeping a small number of tables available for solo diners at each service, where the one for the price of two rule will not apply. Running a restaurant in the current climate is far from easy, 
and for small establishments with limited space, maximising the revenue from each table is an absolute necessity in order to meet soaring costs. What is interesting is the level of backlash which this announcement has caused. You might think that for most people, eating out is a sociable activity and the concept of spending an evening at a table for one, feeling like Billy No Mates, would not be a popular one. But no, it seems there is a clamour to dine alone. I am on the side of those who argue that a table for one is one of the great luxuries of life. The ability to be completely selfish, order what you like, choose a bottle of wine which only you like and not have to share it, to take as much time over dinner as you want to, and to settle in with a book or simply people watch. It's compelling. Eating out alone is is no longer thought of as weird or sad, and many establishments, glad to attract custom of any sort in the current climate, have adapted their offer to accommodate this trend from reconfiguring their dining rooms so that lone diners aren't consigned to the rubbish table by the loos and creating bar dining around open kitchens where the solo diner can interact with the people cooking their bespoke dinner. While this may be new in Britain, such indulgence of people who want to eat out alone is common elsewhere. As it happens, I'm typing these words in Burgundy before heading out to a traditional French bistro for dinner. While I will be enjoying dinner with my wife, I'm confident that if I were on my own, I would receive the same respect and level of service as anyone else. In fact, I would probably be pampered rather more. The French know that while a lone diner will spend less per table than a couple, they will almost always spend more per person. And because they have only themselves to please, they will be more likely to return to somewhere where they have been treated as a valued customer. So is the Café Royal wrong to penalise solo customers in the way they have decided to do? Well, every restaurant has to make decisions which will ensure their viability. And if a large proportion of the establishment's 11 tables were indeed being booked by single people, then perhaps they have the right to do that. But if there is a genuine demand for tables for one, wouldn't it be a clamour to dine alone? I am on the side of those who argue that a table for one is one of the great luxuries of life. The ability to be completely selfish, order what you like, choose a bottle of wine which only you like and not have to share it, to take as much time over dinner as you want to, and to settle in with a book or simply people watch. It's compelling. Eating out alone is is no longer thought of as weird or sad, and many establishments, glad to attract custom of any sort in the current climate, have adapted their offer to accommodate this trend from reconfiguring their dining rooms so that lone diners aren't consigned to the rubbish table by the loos and creating bar dining around open kitchens where the solo diner can interact with the people cooking their bespoke dinner. While this may be new in Britain, such indulgence of people who want to eat out alone is common elsewhere. As it happens, I'm typing these words in Burgundy before heading out to a traditional French bistro for dinner. 
while I will be enjoying dinner with my wife, I'm confident that if I were on my own, I would receive the same respect and level of service as anyone else. In fact, I would probably be pampered rather more. The French know that while a lone diner will spend less per table than a couple, they will almost always spend more per person. And because they have only themselves to please, they will be more likely to return to somewhere where they have been treated as a valued customer. So is the Café Royal wrong to penalise solo customers in the way they have decided to do? Well, every restaurant has to make decisions which will ensure their viability. And if a large proportion of the establishment's 11 tables were indeed being booked by single people, then perhaps they have the right to do that. But if there is a genuine demand for tables for one, wouldn't it make more sense to think about reconfiguring their restaurant to accommodate that demand rather than doing everything they can to drive it away, especially at a time when hospitality is on its knees? Experts predict that an even higher proportion of Britons will be living alone in the future and those businesses which adapt to offer a good service at a fair price to those on their own will prosper. Meanwhile, if you spot someone eating on their own in a restaurant, don't pity them. They're probably having the time of their lives. Hello, this is Ruth. Eat apples and blackberries to reduce the risk of frailty. Eating foods like apples and blackberries may help lower your chances of developing frailty. Research suggests plant-based foods that contain dietary compounds called flavonols could potentially be linked to a decreased likelihood of the condition. The study suggests flavonoids called quercetin, found in apples and blackberries, may be the most important for frailty prevention. Researchers found that for every 10 milligrams intake of flavonols per day, about one medium-sized apple, the odds of frailty were reduced by 20%. According to Age UK, frailty is generally characterised by issues like reduced muscle strength and fatigue. About 10% of people aged over 65 live with it, and this figure rises to between 25 and 50% for those aged over 85. Current dietary recommendations for frailty prevention primarily focus on protein intake, but the researchers say there are many other foods make more sense to think about reconfiguring their restaurant to accommodate that demand rather than doing everything they can to drive it away, especially at a time when hospitality is on its knees. Experts predict that an even higher proportion of Britons will be living alone in the future and those businesses which adapt to offer a good service at a fair price to those on their own will prosper. Meanwhile, if you spot someone eating on their own in a restaurant, don't pity them. They're probably having the time of their lives. Hello, this is Ruth. Eat apples and blackberries to reduce the risk of frailty. Eating foods like apples and blackberries may help lower your chances 
of developing frailty. Research suggests plant-based foods that contain dietary compounds called flavonols could potentially be linked to a decreased likelihood of the condition. The study suggests flavonoids called quercetin, found in apples and blackberries, may be the most important for frailty prevention. Researchers found that for every 10 milligrams intake of flavonols per day, about one medium-sized apple, the odds of frailty were reduced by 20%. According to Age UK, frailty is generally characterised by issues like reduced muscle strength and fatigue. About 10% of people aged over 65 live with it, and this figure rises to between 25 and 50% for those aged over 85. Current dietary recommendations for frailty prevention primarily focus on protein intake. But the researchers say there are many other foods that may have health benefits. The study authors say there may be some validity to the old saying an apple a day keeps the doctor or frailty away. Our findings suggest that for every 10 milligrams intake of flavonols per day the odds of frailty are reduced by 20%. Individuals can easily consume 10 milligrams of flavonol intake per day since one medium-sized apple has about 10 milligrams of flavonols. Co-authors Shivani Sani and Courtney Millar of Harvard Medical School said, although there was no significant association between total flavonoid intake and frailty, higher flavonols intake, one of the subclasses of flavonoids, was associated with lower odds of developing frailty. Specifically, higher quercetin intake was the flavonoid that had the strongest association with frailty prevention. This data suggests that there may be particular subclasses of flavonoids that have the most potential as a dietary strategy for frailty prevention. According to the scientists, future research should focus on dietary interventions of flavonols or quercetin for the treatment of frailty. The findings were published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. A Royal Welcome When the King Came to Visit Norfolk by Derek James It was a day of popular rejoicings with the city in festive garb and scenes of magnificence that may have health benefits. The study authors say there may be some validity to the old saying an apple a day keeps the doctor or frailty away. Our findings suggest that for every 10 milligrams intake of flavonols per day, the odds of frailty are reduced by 20%.
Individuals can easily consume 10 milligrams of flavanol intake per day, since one medium-sized apple has about 10 milligrams of flavanols. Co-authors Shivani Sani and Courtney Miller of Harvard Medical School said, although there was no significant association between total flavonoid intake and frailty, higher flavanols intake, one of the subclasses of flavonoids, was associated with lower odds of developing frailty. Specifically, higher quercetin intake was the flavonoid that had the strongest association with frailty prevention. This data suggests that there may be particular subclasses of flavonoids that have the most potential as a dietary strategy for frailty prevention. According to the scientists, future research should focus on dietary interventions of flavonols or quercetin for the treatment of frailty. The findings were published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. A Royal Welcome When the King Came to Visit Norfolk by Derek James It was a day of popular rejoicings with the city in festive garb and scenes of magnificence. The way we describe the events in 1909 when the king came calling and thousands of people turned out to greet him. King Edward VII, the eldest son of Queen Victoria, was on a state visit to Norwich, and it seems much of South Norfolk and the whole city was in party mood for this very special day. Remember, these were the days when very few people actually got to see their monarch in the flesh, so the fact the man known to his family as Bertie and others as the Uncle of Europe was coming, really did make it a day to remember and cherish. The king had come to review and present colours to units of the territorial forces in Norfolk at Mousehold, and lay the foundation stone for extensions and improvements at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. It took many months of planning for an, for an occasion such as this one, which took place on Monday, October the 25th, 1909. After all, this was a day which would go down in the history books. But it is often forgotten that the welcome started on the Saturday afternoon when he arrived in Norfolk. A special train brought the king and his party from London on the Saturday afternoon where he stayed with the Earl and Countess of Albemarle at Quidnam Hall. One hundred territorials from companies at Attleborough, Thetford, Brandon and Wyndham lined up outside. The way we describe the events in 1909 when the king came calling and thousands of people turned out to greet him. King Edward VII, the eldest son of Queen Victoria, was on a state visit to Norwich, and it seems much of South Norfolk and the whole city was in party mood for this very special day. Remember, these were the days when very few people actually got to see their monarch in the flesh, so the fact the man known to his family as Bertie and others as the Uncle of Europe 
was coming really did make it a day to remember and cherish. The king had come to review and present colours to units of the territorial forces in Norfolk at Mousehold, and lay the foundation stone for extensions and improvements at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. It took many months of planning for an, for an occasion such as this one, which took place on Monday, October the 25th, 1909. After all, this was a day which would go down in the history books. But it is often forgotten that the welcome started on the Saturday afternoon when he arrived in Norfolk. A special train brought the King and his party from London on the Saturday afternoon, where he stayed with the Earl and Countess of Albemarle at Quidnam Hall. One hundred territorials from companies at Attleborough, Thetford, Brandon and Wyndham lined up outside Eccles Road Station, along with the band under bandmaster J. Maidment. The police were out in force, along with large crowds, as the King's train glided into the station, where a crimson carpet covered the platform. What an honour for Eccles Road! Just before the royal train arrived, the Earl of Albemarle, with the Earl of Leicester by motor from the hall to welcome the King to Norfolk and escort him to Quiddenham Hall. The roads were lined with cheering people. Arches had been erected across the roads, and children were waving their flags. Guests at the hall for the weekend included the Earl and Countess of Leicester, Viscountess Chelsea, General Sir Arthur Paget, the Honourable George and Mrs. Keppel, and Viscount and Viscountess Berry. The King's Sunday at Quidnham included watching the milking of forty cows with the farm lads engaged in the business all wearing smart white smocks. As his tour arrived at the lawn, Mr. Bradford, the head gardener, held a young cedar tree to be planted, and the king was asked to shovel in the soil. The king did not, it was reported, quite finish his task, for turning to the others the king invited them all to assist, and thus warm themselves. After leaving Quidnam Hall on Monday, the king presented William Siddle, steward to Lord Albemarle, the Victoria Medal. He was a well-known and highly respected agriculturalist. At 10.25am precisely, the king left Quidnam Hall for Norwich. By invitation of Lady Albemarle, about 700 children from various schools gathered in Quidnam Park to see him off, and others line the neighbouring roads. We reported, the youngsters made the scene gay with waving flags, and cheered the king heartily as he passed by. The king bowed in return, the car passing almost at walking pace. Hundreds of people lined the roads into the city, and the houses were described as being profusely decorated and looking extremely pretty, against the background of autumnal-tinted foliage. As for the city, well, it was transformed into a blaze of colour, with floral archways as the king arrived, and just about every building decorated. He was welcomed at St Andrew's Hall by a fanfare of trumpets and a civic reception. From there he went to Mousehold, 
where more than 11,000 schoolchildren gathered on St. James Hill to sing the national anthem as he passed by. The event, involving huge numbers of soldiers from Norfolk, Suffolk, and further afield, was described as a brilliant spectacle. Then, off to the old drill hall beside Eccles Road Station, along with the band under bandmaster Jay Maidment. The police were out in force, along with large crowds, as the King's train glided into the station, where a crimson carpet covered the platform. What an honour for Eccles Road! Just before the royal train arrived, the Earl of Albemarle, with the Earl of Leicester by motor from the hall to welcome the King to Norfolk and escort him to Quiddenham Hall. The roads were lined with cheering people. Arches had been erected across the roads, and children were waving their flags. The guests at the hall for the weekend included the Earl and Countess of Leicester, Viscountess Chelsea, General Sir Arthur Paget, the Honourable George and Mrs. Keppel, and Viscount and Viscountess Berry. The King's Sunday at Quidnham included watching the milking of forty cows with the farm lads engaged in the business all wearing smart white smocks. As his tour arrived at the lawn, Mr. Bradford, the head gardener, held a young cedar tree to be planted, and the king was asked to shovel in the soil. The king did not, it was reported, quite finish his task, for turning to the others, the king invited them all to assist, and thus warm themselves. After leaving Quidnam Hall on Monday, the king presented William Siddle, steward to Lord Albemarle, the Victoria Medal. He was a well-known and highly respected agriculturalist. At 10.25 a.m. precisely, the king left Quidnam Hall for Norwich. By invitation of Lady Albemarle, about 700 children from various schools gathered in Quidnam Park to see him off, and others lined the neighbouring roads. We reported, the youngsters made the scene gay with waving flags and cheered the king heartily as he passed by. The king bowed in return, the car passing almost at walking pace. Hundreds of people lined the roads into the city, and the houses were described as being profusely decorated and looking extremely pretty against the background of autumnal-tinted foliage. As for the city, well, it was transformed into a blaze of colour with floral archways as the king arrived and just about every building decorated. He was welcomed at St Andrew's Hall by a fanfare of trumpets and a civic reception. From there he went to Mousehold, where more than 11,000 schoolchildren gathered on St James Hill to sing the national anthem as he passed by. The event, involving huge numbers of soldiers from Norfolk, Suffolk and further afield, was described as a brilliant spectacle. Then off to the old drill hall in Chapelfield for a spot of lunch before laying the foundation stone for the extensions at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Tea was taken at Crown Point with Mr. and Mrs. Russell Coleman before heading off to Newmarket via Lord Ivy's estate at Elverdon. What a day! What a weekend! 
And did the fact one of the city's greatest ever mayors, Walter Rye, refuse to wear a top hat and tails for the king cost him a knighthood? Well, that's a story for another day. Wyndham Heritage Museum Volunteers Restore Town Sign by Neil Haverson Neil Haverson tells the story of the restored Wyndham Town Sign at the Town's Heritage Museum and weaves in a few memories of the master craftsman who originally carved it. At school, I did not excel at woodwork in spite of the fact I had one of the most naturally gifted craftsmen teaching me. Harry Carter, Chapelfield for a spot of lunch before laying the foundation stone for the extensions of the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Tea was taken at Crown Point with Mr. and Mrs. Russell Coleman before heading off to Newmarket via Lord Ivy's estate at Elverdon. What a day! What a weekend! And did the fact one of the city's greatest ever mayors, Walter Rye, refuse to wear a top hat and tails for the king cost him a knighthood? Well, that's a story for another day. Wyndham Heritage Museum Volunteers Restore Town Sign by Neil Haverson Neil Haverson tells the story of the restored Wyndham Town Sign at the Town's Heritage Museum and weaves in a few memories of the master craftsman who originally carved it. At school, I did not excel at woodwork in spite of the fact I had one of the most naturally gifted craftsmen teaching me. Harry Carter was art and woodwork teacher at Heyman's Grammar School in Swaffham. As you drive through the towns and villages of Norfolk, the chances are you will pass one of the wooden signs carved by Mr Carter. He made around 200 town signs between 1929 and his death in 1983. Often he would be chipping away at a sign during lessons, while supervising us as we beavered away, planing wood-constructing dovetail joints. Those boys who had an aptitude for woodwork were allowed to assist him with his signs. I was not one of those boys, but I do claim to have helped with the sign for Snetson. My small contribution must have shaved seconds off his carving time. Some years after I'd left the school, minus any carpentry skills, Harry carved the town sign for Wyndham. It was presented to the town by Wyndham's Women's Institute to mark its Golden Jubilee and was unveiled on Wednesday, July 30th, 1969 by Ella Bowden, the oldest member of the local WI and its treasurer for more than 30 years. Mrs Bowden had the idea of presenting the sign during her time on the council and it suggested it as a way to mark the Institute's 50 years in Wyndham. Benedictine monks sit on top of the sign. Featured on one side is Robert Kett, who led the rebellion in 1949 against the enclosure of common fields by landowners, was art and woodwork teacher at Heyman's Grammar School in Swaffham. As you drive through the towns and villages of Norfolk, the chances are you will pass one of the wooden signs carved by Mr Carter. He made around 200 town signs between 1929 and his death in 1983. Often he would be chipping away at a sign during lessons, while supervising us as we beavered away, planing wood-constructing dovetail joints. 
Those boys who had an aptitude for woodwork were allowed to assist him with his signs. I was not one of those boys. But I do claim to have helped with the sign for Snetson. My small contribution must have shaved seconds off his carving time. Some years after I'd left the school, minus any carpentry skills, Harry carved the town sign for Wyndham. It was presented to the town by Wyndham's Women's Institute to mark its Golden Jubilee and was unveiled on Wednesday, July 30th, 1969 by Ella Bowden, the oldest member of the local WI and its treasurer for more than 30 years. Mrs Bowden had the idea of presenting the sign during her time on the council and it suggested it as a way to mark the Institute's 50 years in Wyndham. Benedict Dean Monks sit on top of the sign. Featured on one side is Robert Kett, who led the rebellion in 1949 against the enclosure of common fields by landowners. On the reverse is a panel depicting a woodturner at work celebrating the production of wooden goods, such as spoons, once a major industry in Wyndham and surrounding areas. The arms of Wyndham, a spoon and spigot, are displayed on the bottom of both sides of the sign, with the motto Win Muntham, meaning the village on the Pleasant Mound. It stood for almost 40 years in the grounds of Beckett's Chapel on Church Street, but the weather took its toll and the sign was replaced by an aluminium version in 2008, unveiled by the then mayor, Len Elston. When the town council moved to new offices last year, the old wooden sign was found in outbuildings. Before it was disposed of, it was offered to Wyndham Heritage Museum. It was considered an important part of the town's history, so the museum accepted the offer. But much restoration work was needed. Museum maintenance manager David Brackenbury, with help from some of the other museum volunteers, took on the project. David said, the main problem was that it had been painted so many times with heavy lead paint. All the layers were different colours. One of the monks had been grey, black and dark green. And a monk was in a bad state. I used lots of wood filler and hardener. It took many hours to restore the sign, says David. But thanks to the good weather, it was all done without it getting wet. I put the final coat of varnish on one morning and it rained at lunchtime. On metal stakes embedded in two feet of concrete, the sign now stands proud in the peaceful location of Wyndham Heritage Museum's Courtyard Garden, formerly the exercise yards for prisoners incarcerated in the Bridewell, the museum's home. The garden is open to museum visitors, where they can see the sign and relax with homemade cakes and scones from the Bridewell Team Room. Museum and Tea Room are open daily, Saturday to Wednesday, 1pm to 4pm, Thursdays and Friday, 10am to 4pm. Playing Your Cigarette Cards Right by Mike Hicks, EDP 26 of the 6th, 23. From the 20th to the 21st centuries, enormous changes took place. Things that were considered to be an everyday occurrence are now completely outlawed. Probably one of the most anxiously removed items from our shops have been cigarettes. I certainly remember family members who always had a packet of players, players' weights and woodbines. It was just normal life and had been for a long time. 
While there were vending machines that produced packets of five cigarettes for maybe a shilling, you could also go into a tobacconist and buy a box of 200. They were freely available, and there is no doubt that many of our very large companies, such as Imperial Tobacco and Wills, made fortunes of, out of selling this weed. The market needed... On the reverse is a panel depicting a woodturner at work celebrating the production of wooden goods, such as spoons, once a major industry in Wyndham and surrounding areas. The arms of Wyndham, a spoon and spigot, are displayed on the bottom of both sides of the sign, with the motto Wyndmuntham, meaning the village on the pleasant mound. It stood for almost 40 years in the grounds of Beckett's Chapel on Church Street, but the weather took its toll and the sign was replaced by an aluminium version in 2008, unveiled by the then mayor, Len Elston. When the town council moved to new offices last year, the old wooden sign was found in outbuildings. Before it was disposed of, it was offered to Wyndham Heritage Museum. It was considered an important part of the town's history, so the museum accepted the offer. But much restoration work was needed. Museum maintenance manager David Brackenbury with help from some of the other museum volunteers, took on the project. David said, The main problem was that it had been painted so many times with heavy lead paint. All the layers were different colours. One of the monks had been grey, black and dark green. And a monk was in a bad state. I used lots of wood filler and hardener. It took many hours to restore the sign, says David. But thanks to the good weather, it was all done without it getting wet. I put the final coat of varnish on one morning, and it rained at lunchtime. On metal stakes embedded in two feet of concrete, the sign now stands proud in the peaceful location of Wyndham Heritage Museum's courtyard garden, formerly the exercise yards for prisoners incarcerated in the Bridewell, the museum's home. The garden is open to museum visitors, where they can see the sign and relax with homemade cakes and scones from the Bridewell Tea Room. Museum and Tea Room are open daily, Saturday to Wednesday, 1pm to 4pm, Thursdays and Friday, 10am to 4pm. Playing Your Cigarette Cards Right by Mike Hicks, EDP 26 of the 6th, 23. From the 20th to the 21st centuries, enormous changes took place. Things that were considered to be an everyday occurrence are now completely outlawed. Probably one of the most anxiously removed items from our shops have been cigarettes. I certainly remember family members who always had a packet of players, players' weights and woodbines. It was just normal life and had been for a long time. While there were vending machines that produced packets of five cigarettes for maybe a shilling, you could also go into a tobacconist and buy a box of 200. They were freely available, and there is no doubt that many of our very large companies, such as Imperial Tobacco and Wills, made fortunes of, out of selling this weed. The market needed stimulus and encouragement from time to time, and to that end, cigarette cards were put into packets for two reasons. The company's version is that they were put into the packets to help stiffen the packaging and make certain the cigarettes arrived in good condition. 
More likely, I think, it was done as an encouragement to try and get complete sets of cigarette cards, for which you were then given a free album to put the items in. This could have been encouraged by younger family members who maybe wanted to collect film stars, motor cars, butterflies, soldiers, all the hundreds of different subject matters that were on these cards, and to all intents and purposes, they were free. Yes, free to encourage people to smoke. Of course, there are collectors of cigarette cards, devotees, particularly in America, where in 2007 a world record price was paid for a single card, and this was over £1.8 million. It featured one of America's great stimulus and encouragement from time to time, and to that end, cigarette cards were put into packets for two reasons. The company's version is that they were put into the packets to help stiffen the packaging and make certain the cigarettes arrived in good condition. More likely, I think, it was done as an encouragement to try and get complete sets of cigarette cards, for which you were then given a free album to put the items in. This could have been encouraged by younger family members who maybe wanted to collect film stars, motor cars, butterflies, soldiers, all the hundreds of different subject matters that were on these cards, and to all intents and purposes, they were free. Yes, free to encourage people to smoke. Of course, there are collectors of cigarette cards, devotees, particularly in America, where in 2007 a world record price was paid for a single card, and this was over £1.8 million. It featured one of America's greatest baseball players, Honus Wagler. He was a dedicated non-smoker who objected when America's biggest tobacco company planted a picture of him on a cigarette card without his permission. Threats of legal action were taken against the cigarette card company and his card was withdrawn. But just a few slipped out onto the market. And this is one of those cards which is the holy grail of card collectors in America. Over here, we had numerous companies producing cigarette cards, none of which today are very valuable. We have two types of albums, one where the cards are stuck down and the whole album is probably worth a pound. We have other albums where they are slotted in with no glue, no sticking down, which might have a small value. Bearing in mind, there are some cigarette card companies in the UK who have over a million cards in stock, so there are plenty available. However, there is one card that is way above in value compared to any other, and that is Taddy's. They were established in 1740 and became a major British tobacco firm. Mr Taddy, and that's T-A-D-D-Y, was very keen that his workers should be paid more than any other tobacco manufacturer and thereby getting good results and good production from his workforce. It is not very often that Taddy cards come onto the market and I noticed that some were sold recently to baseball players Honus Wagler. He was a dedicated non-smoker who objected when America's biggest tobacco company planted a picture of him on a cigarette card without his permission. Threats of legal action were taken against the cigarette card company and his card was withdrawn, but just a few slipped out onto the market 
And this is one of those cards which is the holy grail of card collectors in America. Over here, we had numerous companies producing cigarette cards, none of which today are very valuable. We have two types of albums, one where the cards are stuck down and the whole album is probably worth a pound. We have other albums where they are slotted in with no glue, no sticking down, which might have a small value. Bearing in mind, there are some cigarette card companies in the UK who have over a million cards in stock, so there are plenty available. However, there is one card that is way above in value compared to any other, and that is Taddy's. They were established in 1740 and became a major British tobacco firm. Mr Taddy, and that's T-A-D-D-Y, was very keen that his workers should be paid more than any other tobacco manufacturer and thereby getting good results and good production from his workforce. It is not very often that Taddy cards come onto the market and I noticed that some were sold recently uh, where a set of 50 made some £650. Individual cards of clowns and similar subject matter do sometimes fetch considerably more. One interesting note about the Taddy factory was that in the 1920s, the whole of the cigarette industry went on strike. The workers were demanding more money and the strike was the only way they felt they could gain notice to their plight. However, the Taddy's company owner, a Sir Gilead Edward Hatfield, threatened to shut down the company if the staff failed to return to work. The Taddy workers did not back down, so Hatfield carried out his threat and closed the factory. This meant that after the 1920s, no more Taddy cards were produced, which makes those more uncommon ones produced by them particularly rare. I must emphasise that cigarette cards in general are not keenly sought after. And as I said, if they are stuck down in albums, it makes them even less collectible. But it is always worth taking along to your local dealer or auction house to get an opinion. But remember, the byword is taddies. There's an accompanying picture to this of one of these cigarette cards, a taddies clown cigarettes. And uh, it shows a trapeze artist. Yeah, she's uh, balancing on the uh, high wire trapeze, uh, holding a parasol. And you can contact uh, Mike Hicks on 01692580636 or on email at info at mikehicksantiques.co.uk. Life on and off the Britain Brush Factory floor at Wyndham by Derek James. They worked hard, but they knew how to enjoy themselves. Let's meet the families who worked at the famous Britain Brush Factory in Wyndham. Wood turning was the major trade in the town back in the 17th century before weaving took over. The well-established Robert Semmons and Sons were making brushbacks for Pages of Norwich and they built a factory and sawmill at Ladies Lane in Wyndham in 1890. 
By the early 1900s, brush making was flourishing. Where a set of 50 made some 650 pounds. Individual cards of clowns and similar subject matter do sometimes fetch considerably more. One interesting note about the Taddy factory was that in the 1920s, the whole of the cigarette industry went on strike. The workers were demanding more money and the strike was the only way they felt they could gain notice to their plight. However, the Taddy's company owner, a Sir Gilliatt Edward Hatfield, threatened to shut down the company if the staff failed to return to work. The Taddy workers did not back down, so Hatfield carried out his threat and closed the factory. This meant that after the 1920s, no more Taddy cards were produced, which makes those more uncommon ones produced by them particularly rare. I must emphasise that cigarette cards in general are not keenly sought after. And as I said, if they are stuck down in albums, it makes them even less collectible. But it is always worth taking along to your local dealer or auction house to get an opinion. But remember, the byword is taddies. There's an accompanying picture to this of one of these cigarette cards, a taddies clown cigarettes. And uh, it shows a trapeze artist. Yeah, she's uh, balancing on the uh, high wire trapeze, uh, holding a parasol. And you can contact uh, Mike Hicks on 01692 or on email at info at mikehicksantiques.co.uk. Life on and off the Britain Brush Factory floor at Wyndham by Derek James. They worked hard, but they knew how to enjoy themselves. Let's meet the families who worked at the famous Britain Brush Factory in Wyndham. Wood turning was the major trade in the town back in the 17th century before weaving took over. The well-established Robert Simmons and Sons were making brushbacks for pages of Norwich and they built a factory and sawmill at Ladies Lane in Wyndham in 1890. By the early 1900s, brush making was flourishing with hundreds of men and women employed in Wyndham and Norwich. Eventually, the Britain Brush Company took over and became famous across the world. And in 1922, the co-op also opened a factory in the town. The Norwich factory closed and the spotlight was on Wyndham. Britain was booming, terming out vast numbers of every kind of brush you can imagine. During the early 1930s, a works playing field was developed, where a whole host of events were held. The bosses would put up a marquee and treat children of the staff to bumper teas and entertainments. The Britain Football Club was formed in 1935 and was a handy outfit in the Norwich Junior League and the Wyndham and District League. The ladies also had a soccer team 
along with netball and hockey sides. And when a swimming pool was opened in Brewery Lane in 1931, the two brush factory teams used it. Outings were major events to resorts such as Great Yarmouth, Felixstowe and South End. And in 1937, the co-op chartered a train to take their workers to Blackpool. There were also Miss Britain competitions. The social come dance always gave the directors an opportunity to present retirement and long service awards, said Philip Yaxley, the Wyndham historian and author who sent us these pictures. In 1937, Tom Yaxley, my grandfather, received one such award for 61 years continuous service. They really were jobs for life then, he added. And our reporter at the 1954 party in the Samson and Hercules ballroom, attended by 650 people, wrote, Everybody from the most junior office boy to the oldest pensioner joined in the fun. They were obviously happy people, these Britain people. Yes, their work may have been hard graft, but they really enjoyed workers' playtime. Both factories have now been demolished, but the memories remain. With special thanks to Philip Yaxley. This article is illustrated by a number of photographs from Philip Yaxley's collection, showing work in progress at the factory and workers getting off on their annual summer outing to Skegness from Wyndham Station. Uses of Valerian by Grace Corn. There are now plants of Valerian in full flower, and the pretty pale pink blooms are most attractive. It is important not to confuse these plants with those of red, sometimes white valerian, which can rapidly take over a garden and prefers dry areas or even old walls, whereas the true valerian is happier in moist conditions. The two plants are often misidentified and confused with one another. The true valerian has always been prized for its medicinal properties and was very much used in the countryside to help to heal wounds. It was said that leaves would either be rubbed on cuts and scratches or actually wrapped around a wound and bandaged in place. Now, products of the plant tend to be used to help sufferers from insomnia and nervous disorders. But those being treated should always remember it produces a potent drug and should only be taken for short periods. Valerian was used a great deal during the Second World War, both for shocked soldiers and for those forced to endure nightly air raids. The medicines were made from the roots of the plants, and the roots cultivated in England were considered far superior to others. Also made from the roots was an oil used in perfumery and as a flavouring for food. It is therefore unfortunate that throughout history valerian has been scorned, 
because when the roots were dried, they had a terrible smell. In fact, a stink like bad drains. It has always been rumoured that the smell of the dried roots of true valerian will prove irresistible to both rats and cats. However, experiments have shown that the growing plants do not interest them in the least. Valerian is obviously powerful, and products made from it can have noticeable effects on the brain. If it is taken continuously, it has the ability to alter blood pressure. It can certainly become addictive and can affect the patient's temperament, sometimes causing delusions or fits of unexplained anger. It has been suggested that the irrational behavior of a... Showing work in progress at the factory and workers getting off on their annual summer outing to Skegness from Wyndham Station. Uses of Valerian by Grace Corn. There are now plants of valerian in full flower, and the pretty pale pink blooms are most attractive. It is important not to confuse these plants with those of red, sometimes white valerian, which can rapidly take over a garden and prefers dry areas or even old walls, whereas the true valerian is happier in moist conditions. The two plants are often misidentified, and confused with one another. The true valerian has always been prized for its medicinal properties and was very much used in the countryside to help to heal wounds. It was said that leaves would either be rubbed on cuts and scratches or actually wrapped around a wound and bandaged in place. Now products of the plant tend to be used to help sufferers from insomnia and nervous disorders. But those being treated should always remember it produces a potent drug and should only be taken for short periods. Valerian was used a great deal during the Second World War, both for shocked soldiers and for those forced to endure nightly air raids. The medicines were made from the roots of the plants, and the roots cultivated in England were considered far superior to others. Also made from the roots was an oil used in perfumery and as a flavouring for food. It is therefore unfortunate that throughout history valerian has been scorned because when the roots were dried they had a terrible smell, in fact a stink like bad drains. It has always been rumoured that the smell of the dried roots of true valerian will prove irresistible to both rats and cats. However, experiments have shown that the growing plants do not interest them in the least. Valerian is obviously powerful, and products made from it can have noticeable effects on the brain. If it is taken continuously, it has the ability to alter blood pressure. It can certainly become addictive and can affect the patient's temperament, sometimes causing delusions or fits of unexplained anger. It has been suggested that the irrational behavior of Adolf Hitler was actually caused by his addiction to Valerian. Half a century in Ambridge. I'm one of the world's longest-serving soap actors, says Brian Hewlett. Escaped pigs, planted drugs, a wife in prison, a son born with a cleft palate, two brothers claiming fatherhood of his daughter's baby. 
it's been an eventful 50 years. Brian Hewlett began playing Neil Carter in February 1973 on a temporary basis. Today, he's the fifth longest-serving soap actor in the world, beaten by two fellow castmates and the thespians behind Coronation Street's Ken Barlow and Rita Tanner. Nobody knew how long he might last when I first recorded his words, said Brian. Our director 50 years ago thanked me for my contribution and said we might write him in for a few more episodes. That's nice, I thought. A bit more work. Now, the young lad who arrived in the fictional village of Ambridge as a farm labourer is a manager of a big pig unit, as well as being a grandfather, parish councillor, bell ringer, church warden and wise village worthy. Although Neil has been in the programme for 50 years, he is a character that is ever-evolving. When I first gave voice to Neil's lines, I doubt whether any of our writers knew how he was going to develop. He certainly had no background, and to this day, I'm still waiting to hear anything about his life before being a 16-year-old. When clueless Neil arrived in Ambridge, he managed to plough up a field of wheat, thinking it was grass, left a gate open so the animals escaped, and was quite the ladies' man, with several girlfriends until young Susan Horobin, when a pig and asked him how to look after it. The rest is Archer's history. The character has evolved as the writers and editors have seen fit, from a youth with very little experience through some unfulfilled romances. Dolph Hitler was actually caused by his addiction to Valerian. Half a century in Ambridge. I'm one of the world's longest-serving soap actors, says Brian Hewlett. Escaped pigs, planted drugs, a wife in prison, a son born with a cleft palate, two brothers claiming fatherhood of his daughter's baby. It's been an eventful 50 years. Brian Hewlett began playing Neil Carter in February 1973 on a temporary basis. Today, he's the fifth longest-serving soap actor in the world, beaten by two fellow castmates and the thespians behind Coronation Street's Ken Barlow and Rita Tanner. Nobody knew how long he might last when I first recorded his words, said Brian. Our director 50 years ago thanked me for my contribution and said we might write him in for a few more episodes. That's nice, I thought. A bit more work. Now, the young lad who arrived in the fictional village of Ambridge as a farm labourer is a manager of a big pig unit, as well as being a grandfather, parish councillor, bell ringer, church warden and wise village worthy. Although Neil has been in the programme for 50 years, he is a character that is ever-evolving. When I first gave voice to Neil's lines, I doubt whether any of our writers knew how he was going to develop. He certainly had no background, and to this day, I'm still waiting to hear anything about his life before being a 16-year-old. When clueless Neil arrived in Ambridge, he managed to plough up a field of wheat, thinking it was grass, left a gate open so the animals escaped, and was quite the ladies' man, with several girlfriends until young Susan Horobin, when a pig and asked him how to look after it. The rest is Archer's history. The character has evolved as the writers and editors have seen fit, from a youth with very little experience through some unfulfilled romances, then a sudden marriage, 
through joys and tribulations of family life, periods of insecurity and the security of love, the recognition of dependability, and a deep-seated passion for his family's happiness, said Brian. All of this I have enjoyed performing, as I have enjoyed performing all well-written characters in other forms of my business. Even after decades in Ambridge, Neil is subject to the whims of the scriptwriters, and Brian never knows whether he might soon be leading a major storyline, become sidelined and silent in the posh modern house he built in Ambridge for weeks, or even written out altogether. If Neil is not needed in Borutshire for a while, Brian keeps up with village events via the radio and said, It's great to hear your friends and co-workers performing magic. I know and understand what they are doing, but sometimes tears will flow, because their artistry has created reality. After living with Neil for so long, how similar are the two men? I'd like to think that I am different to Neil, said Brian. I leave Neil behind in the recording studio, where his life is put on hold until his broadcast and his own personality enters into the mind of each listener. If you want to find out what Neil's character is, ask a long-term listener. Brian grew up near London with a compulsive desire to become a professional actor and lived in the capital in the early years of his career, which has included roles on stage, in plays and musicals, and then on radio and television. He originally met his partner, Malcolm, at drama school. They were friends for years, and after following their individual stage careers, moved into a London flat share together. Having been brought up close to rural life in the Thames Valley, I knew that at some time I would want to live in the country again, said Brian. In 1983, they found an old farmhouse overlooking the Waveney Valley and work at Walsley Theatre in Ipswich. At last, Brian like Neil, was living in the countryside, where villagers have even suggested that Archer's storylines have been inspired by events in Norfolk. I get unfair blame from the residents of my village that whatever happens here somehow turns up in Ambridge, said Brian. We started a cider club here before Eddie Grundy's cider club was mentioned. Unlike Neil, Brian's animal husbandry is limited to pet cats, one from a rescue centre, and two ferals which suddenly turned up several years ago. Then a sudden marriage, through joys and tribulations of family life, periods of insecurity and the security of love, the recognition of dependability, and a deep-seated passion for his family's happiness, said Brian. All of this I have enjoyed performing, as I have enjoyed performing all well-written characters in other forms of my business. Even after decades in Ambridge, Neil is subject to the whims of the scriptwriters, and Brian never knows whether he might soon be leading a major storyline, become sidelined and silent in the posh modern house he built in Ambridge for weeks, or even written out altogether. If Neil is not needed in Borutshire for a while, Brian keeps up with village events via the radio and said, It's great to hear your friends and co-workers performing magic. I know and understand what they are doing, but sometimes tears will flow, because their artistry has created reality. After living with Neil for so long, how similar are the two men? I'd like to think that I am different to Neil, said Brian. I leave Neil behind in the recording studio, where his life is put on hold until his broadcast and his own personality 
enters into the mind of each listener. If you want to find out what Neil's character is, ask a long-term listener. Brian grew up near London with a compulsive desire to become a professional actor and lived in the capital in the early years of his career, which has included roles on stage, in plays and musicals, and then on radio and television. He originally met his partner, Malcolm, at drama school. They were friends for years, and after following their individual stage careers, moved into a London flat share together. Having been brought up close to rural life in the Thames Valley, I knew that at some time I would want to live in the country again, said Brian. In 1983, they found an old farmhouse overlooking the Waveney Valley and work at Walsley Theatre in Ipswich. At last, Brian, like Neil, was living in the countryside, where villagers have even suggested that Archer's storylines have been inspired by events in Norfolk. I get unfair blame from the residents of my village that whatever happens here somehow turns up in Ambridge, said Brian. We started a cider club here before Eddie Grundy's cider club was mentioned. Unlike Neil, Brian's animal husbandry is limited to pet cats, one from a rescue centre and two ferals which suddenly turned up several years ago. The male feral one will still not let me touch him. He avoids all human contact but recognises that he gets his food from me, so I am tolerated, said Brian. Brian also began rewilding long before it became a plot theme on the arches. His farmhouse originally came with a small orchard. It was devastated by the 1987 storms. Rewilding over the years has provided me with a wildlife home. Conservation and wildlife have featured very strongly in the life I shared with my civil partner Malcolm, so my life in Norfolk has contributed to much happiness. Malcolm died three years ago after a long illness. We both had plenty of time to know that the future held a moment in which a parting would take place, said Brian. But the dreadful moment of complete loss, when it happened, could only be, and was, experienced by me. Then a wonderful thing happened. The love of all our friends was given to me by their support and understanding. I cannot praise friendship too highly. I am a very lucky person to have gained so many friends in my life. We conclude this section with a contribution from dog behaviourist Julia Collins. How many of you have trained your dog to respond to hand signals as well as voice commands? Not many, I bet, and even fewer people bother with a whistle. Now, when you set about forging a bond with your dog, it does make great sense to use as many means of communication as possible. Many of us will have experienced trying to converse with someone who doesn't share our particular language. We use our hands, often acting out that which we do not have the vocabulary for. So why not take the same approach with our dogs? Imagine this. If we are desperate to ask a burning request of our pet, would The male feral one will still not let me touch him. He avoids all human contact, but recognises that he gets his food from me. So I am tolerated, said Brian. Brian also began rewilding long before it became a plot theme on the arches. 
His farmhouse originally came with a small orchard. It was devastated by the 1987 storms. Rewilding over the years has provided me with a wildlife home. Conservation and wildlife have featured very strongly in the life I shared with my civil partner Malcolm, so my life in Norfolk has contributed to much happiness. Malcolm died three years ago after a long illness. We both had plenty of time to know that the future held a moment in which a parting would take place, said Brian. But the dreadful moment of complete loss, when it happened, could only be, and was, experienced by me. Then a wonderful thing happened. The love of all our friends was given to me by their support and understanding. I cannot praise friendship too highly. I am a very lucky person to have gained so many friends in my life. We conclude this section with a contribution from dog behaviourist Julia Collins. How many of you have trained your dog to respond to hand signals as well as voice commands? Not many, I bet, and even fewer people bother with a whistle. Now, when you set about forging a bond with your dog, it does make great sense to use as many means of communication as possible. Many of us will have experienced trying to converse with someone who doesn't share our particular language. We use our hands, often acting out that which we do not have the vocabulary for. So why not take the same approach with our dogs? Imagine this. If we are desperate to ask a burning request of our pet, wouldn't we turn ourselves inside out to get what we need? giving the situation our all in terms of emotion, intent and ingenuity. So, when gazing into those liquid brown eyes, try seeing yourself as one of two equals. Then, bound by affection and ready to move forward, dissolve complications and difficulties as you go. Adding hand signals to your training commands clarifies and emphasises your instruction and proves a valuable addition to your canine toolbox. If distance or windy weather prevent your voice from carrying, when your dog cannot hear your voice, he will still look to you for signals. Put it this way, if he can't hear you and you haven't factored in any other communication system, he won't really be looking to you for anything. While you're on the job, use a whistle. It's another weather buster and a great attention grabber. You can soon polish up a sequence. Whistle to gain attention, followed by signal and voice to forge a deep join-up, thus keeping the focus firmly on you, the leader. The hand signals to use occur to us so instinctively that they barely need mentioning. Come, opening your welcoming arms wide, as we do for children, and probably crouching down, this works a treat and is nice and clear from a distance. Stay. One outstretched arm, open palm towards dog. Down. Indicate just that with downward sweep of the arm. Sit. Upwards from the forearm with the flat palm towards yourself. Then add your whistle. I use multiple peeps to call the dog in and one long blast for sit at a distance. Then, when working closer to each other, I use a short peep for sit and two for down. But you can develop your own system. 
it's fun, it's easy and very, very useful. Give it a go. And our thanks to Julia for that item. How to Keep Your Machines Running by Martin James, EDP, 6 of the 3rd, 23. I've just spent a deeply unglamorous weekend up to my ankles in water thanks to my washing machine finally giving up the ghost. To be honest, the machine had a good run for its money, lasting well over 10 years. Truly. The male feral one will still not let me touch him. He avoids all human contact, but recognises that he gets his food from me. So I am tolerated, said Brian. Brian also began rewilding long before it became a plot theme on the arches. His farmhouse originally came with a small orchard. It was devastated by the 1987 storms. Rewilding over the years has provided me with a wildlife home. Conservation and wildlife have featured very strongly in the life I shared with my civil partner Malcolm, so my life in Norfolk has contributed to much happiness. Malcolm died three years ago after a long illness. We both had plenty of time to know that the future held a moment in which a parting would take place, said Brian. But the dreadful moment of complete loss, when it happened, could only be, and was, experienced by me. Then a wonderful thing happened. The love of all our friends was given to me by their support and understanding. I cannot praise friendship too highly. I am a very lucky person to have gained so many friends in my life. We conclude this section with a contribution from dog behaviourist Julia Collins. How many of you have trained your dog to respond to hand signals as well as voice commands? Not many, I bet, and even fewer people bother with a whistle. Now, when you set about forging a bond with your dog, it does make great sense to use as many means of communication as possible. Many of us will have experienced trying to converse with someone who doesn't share our particular language. We use our hands, often acting out that which we do not have the vocabulary for. So why not take the same approach with our dogs? Imagine this. If we are desperate to ask a burning request of our pet, wouldn't we turn ourselves inside out to get what we need, giving the situation our all in terms of emotion, intent and ingenuity? So, when gazing into those liquid brown eyes, Try seeing yourself as one of two equals. Then, bound by affection and ready to move forward, dissolve complications and difficulties as you go. Adding hand signals to your training commands clarifies and emphasises your instruction and proves a valuable addition to your canine toolbox. If distance or windy weather prevents your voice from carrying, when your dog cannot hear your voice, he will still look to you for signals. Put it this way, if he can't hear you and you haven't factored in any other communication system, he won't really be looking to you for anything. While you're on the job, use a whistle. It's another weather buster and a great attention grabber. You can soon polish up a sequence. Whistle to gain attention, followed by signal and voice to forge a deep join up. 
thus keeping the focus firmly on you, their leader. The hand signals to use occur to us so instinctively that they barely need mentioning. Come, opening your welcoming arms wide, as we do for children, and probably crouching down, this works a treat and is nice and clear from a distance. Stay, one outstretched arm, open palm towards dog. Down, indicate just that with downward sweep of the arm. Sit, upwards from the forearm with the flat palm towards yourself. Then add your whistle. I use multiple peeps to call the dog in and one long blast for sit at a distance. Then when working closer to each other, I use a short peep for sit and two for down. But you can develop your own system. It's fun, it's easy and very, very useful. Give it a go. And our thanks to Julia for that item. How to Keep Your Machines Running by Martin James, EDP, 6 of the 3rd, 23. I've just spent a deeply unglamorous weekend up to my ankles in water thanks to my washing machine finally giving up the ghost. To be honest, the machine had a good run for its money, lasting well over 10 years. Truly, it's the end of an era. Of course, I'm far, far outside of my warranty and the machine is so old that making a claim on my contents insurance wouldn't be worth it. But what about repairs? After all, there are mountains of electrical white or wet goods clogging up the land. Approximately one and a half million tonnes of electrical waste gets dumped each year. Unfortunately, white goods like washing machines and dryers that are over two years old can be virtually impossible to repair. That's why the right to repair law was introduced, which brings us in line with the EU's similar legislation. Here's how it works. The right to repair states that spare parts must be available for appliances like washing machines, fridges and other white goods that last for up to 10 years after purchase. It also applies to things like lighting and televisions, but not to others like smartphones or other tech devices. The rules only apply for items bought on or after July the 1st, 2021. The driving factor behind the law is to make the things we use eco-friendlier and is part of a wider approach to electrical products. The rules also mean that things like washing machines have to be accessible for repairs too, rather than being sealed in such a way you can't get to key components. As with my dearly departed washing machine, it's incredibly difficult to get inside some electronic items to make the repairs, which meant perfectly good items were disposed of rather than repaired. As with everything, there are caveats. You'll have to pay for the repairs unless you are covered by a warranty or guarantee. In the past, this was prohibitively expensive. However, the new rules mean that manufacturers must make sure that the goods have to be fixable using commonly available tools and without damaging the product. They also have to make sure that spare parts and replacement bits are available to professional repairers. Of course, you do have a number of rights already if your goods pack in, depending on when that happens and why. The Consumer Rights Act gives you the bulk of your shopping rights. 
the Act covers goods and services and whether they are of satisfactory quality as described or fit for purpose. If the goods you buy don't fit into these categories, you can seek a refund, replacement or repair, depending on when things go wrong. If the item was bought online or on the phone, then you have 14 days to return it under the Consumer Contract Regulations of 2013. In-store is different, though, and will depend on the shop's policy. The rules say that you have 30 days from the date the goods were purchased to return the item if it's wonky or isn't as was described. You're entitled to a full refund if the goods are returned within 30 days. If goods are faulty, you have up to six months to return the items and the burden of proof is on the retailer to prove the item wasn't faulty or refund you. They are allowed to have one crack at a repair or replacing the item, but after that, you can ask for a refund. In recent years, teetering towers of fridges and washing machines have pricked at the conscience of many people. So the new rules should go some way towards turning back the tide on electronic waste. If goods covered by the new law do pack in, then shop around to find the best quote for repairs. There are a range of websites bringing together local tradespeople or sharing recommendations for businesses. If you find someone who provides a great service, make sure you recommend them. Ted's First Farm with Alex Perry. Jock Alston owned 2,000 acres. He farmed sugar beet and cereals and he maintained orchards to feed his family. In 1946, this Scot hired the 14-year-old Edward Ted Barham as a farm worker. Nowadays, 14-year-olds are children. However, during that era, Ted was a man who cycled to work on a bike that had been built by his father, George Geoffrey Barham, from pieces he had acquired in yard sales. Ted also used his bike for racing in the gravel pits. Ted was the first in his family to go into farming, though his father and his brother Jimmy were employed as gardeners. Furthermore, he was significantly younger than his workmates, who were all in their twenties. Yet young Ted took all of this in his stride. Many of us townies have sung the Harvest Festival hymn We plough the field and scatter the good seed with the hazy notion of a farmer, a dog and a tractor going about their business. However, in 1940s Norfolk, there were no tractors. There was a horse pulling hoes through the soil under the guidance of Ted or someone like him. And it was very important that both horse and hose remained in between the rows of sugar beet and did not trample the crop. The Suffolk punch, with its appropriately sized hooves, was the farmer's animal of choice. Ted was in the scouts between the ages of 11 and 16 and he applied his scouting skills, 
such as tying knots and lighting fires, to the farm. Jock, in turn, was supportive of the local scouts and permitted them to go on manoeuvres on his land. In the harsh winter of 1946 to 1947, Ted had to be both scout and farm worker par excellence, protecting livestock and keeping the farm going when the fields were unworkable. He and his fellow agricultural workers succeeded in feeding the nation in peacetime as they had during the war. Prisoner of the Past, Elizabeth Pulley by Neil Haverson Elizabeth Pulley was 18 when she made her first appearance at court. She was charged with stealing wearing apparel but was acquitted. However, a year later, she was back before the court where she admitted stealing clothing. She was sentenced to three weeks in Wyndham's notorious Bridewell and then to be whipped at the town's market cross. The story of Elizabeth Pulley and her incarceration forms the basis for the recreated dungeon and accompanying commentary at Wyndham Heritage Museum. Elizabeth Pulley was born in Heatherset in 1761. It is thought that she may have been employed in laundry work as her early crimes involved theft of clothing. Indeed, on August 11th, 1781, she was again before Norfolk Assizes charged with stealing an old cloth coat, a silk handkerchief, and a coloured apron worth threepence halfpenny. This time, she was sentenced to 12 months' hard labour at Aylsham Bridewell. Had she learned her lesson? Not a bit of it. On Christmas Eve, 1782, she broke into a shop owned by Heatherset widow Mrs. Minns. This time she took quite a haul. Ten pounds of cheese, value three shillings, three pounds of bacon, value one shilling and sixpence, twenty-four ounces of butter, value one shilling, seven pounds of flour, value one shilling, and two rolls of worsted cloth, value one shilling. At the Norfolk Lent Assizes in Thetford, she was found guilty and sentenced to death. However, the sentence was commuted to seven years' transportation. Pulley was one of the first convicts to be transported. But Britain had lost her American colonies, so she spent three years in Norwich Castle before she boarded the Hulk Dunkirk at Plymouth, bound for New South Wales. They landed at Sydney Cove on Saturday, January the 26th, 1788. Male convicts had landed a week earlier. Among them was Anthony Rope from Essex. He had been found guilty of stealing goods and money, value 35 shillings. Anthony Rope and Elizabeth Pulley met and formed a relationship. On May the 19th, 1788, they were married at St. Philip's Church, witnessed by two fellow convicts. The first child, Robert, was born on October 30th. Their home was a wattle and daub single room thatched with rushes. In 1790, Elizabeth Pulley became a free woman, and her second child, Elizabeth, was born. 
Anthony Rope was freed in 1791, granted 70 acres of land and given two sow pigs and machinery and seed for one sowing. The family moved a number of times, ending up at Rope's Creek. Elizabeth Pulley became a mother of seven children and had 38 great-grandchildren. She died on August the 9th, 1837, aged 76 years. Anthony died on April 20th, 1843, aged 84 years. In 2008, the great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Pulley visited Wyndham Heritage Museum. Visitors to the museum can descend the stone steps to the dungeon and learn more of what life was like for women prisoners such as Elizabeth Pulley serving their sentences in the Bridewell. The museum is open seven days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday and Sunday 1 to 4 p.m., Thursday and Friday 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and the tea room, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 1 to 4 p.m., and Thursday and Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. For more information about what to see and do at the museum, go to www.thewhm.org.uk. The Wonders of Our Deep History Coast by Rowan Mantle Norfolk's coast is renowned for its beaches, wildlife, salt marshes, quaint villages and seaside resorts. It is also full of so many wonders stretching back through millions of years that it has become known as the Deep History Coast. The name was devised by historian John Davies and paleontologist David Waterhouse, who have turned a trip to the seaside into a journey back two million years with their awe-inspiring new book. It explores the incredible geology, archaeology, wildlife and scenery of the Norfolk coast. See evidence of ice ages, meet pioneering Victorian fossil collectors, visit Roman forts and Victorian resorts, taste the cuisine of the sea, find mammoths and Neanderthals, and plunge into deep history. Highlighting the work of Norfolk Museum Service and the immense importance of our 100-mile shoreline in human history, they turned decades of research and discovery into a tour of the coast from its formation to the present day, and from Pakefield all the way round to the Wash, west of King's Lynn. John was Chief Curator and Keeper of Archaeology for Norfolk Museum Service and in charge of the project to restore Norwich's Castle Keep to its Norman heyday before he retired. David is a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist. He was senior curator of natural history and geology for Norfolk Museum Service and is now curator of the Scott Polar Institute in Cambridge. He is also an artist and created illustrations for the book and its front cover. John and David put much of the book together during the pandemic, writing for anyone interested in the Norfolk coast, whether a local or visitor, scientist, historian, walker or wildlife watcher. And do they have their own favourite parts of the deep history coast? John said favourite experiences while researching the book included seeing a Hunstanton sunset, watching thousands of wading birds take flight from Snetsam as an early morning high tide rolled in, and walking across the chalk 
exposed by a low tide at Sidestrand. David particularly loves West Runton and Haysborough. At Haysborough, I was privileged to work excavating the oldest and largest archaeological site in Northern Europe, he said. During my time there, 80 or so stone tools were found, dating to nearly a million years ago. And West Runton, because it is where the largest and oldest mammoth ever discovered in the UK was found, said David. I loved giving tours of the stores housing it as well as giving talks about the amazing landscape, flora and flora that it lived in and alongside. Exploring Norfolk's deep history coast has been called fascinating and illuminating by scientist and television presenter Alice Roberts, who said, This book takes you on a trip to the Teesside and back into the depths of the Ice Age, walking in the steps of our distant ancestors. Exploring Norfolk's Deep History Coast by John Davies and David Waterhouse is published by The History Press. Eight Amazing Facts from Exploring Norfolk's Deep History Coast Number 1. Norfolk is the only part of Britain where evidence for four species of humans has been found. Number 2. Fossilised footprints show people were walking around the Haysborough area almost a million years ago. It became the oldest archaeological site in Northern Europe. Number 3. The mammoth discovered at West Runton is the largest, oldest and most complete ever found in Britain. Number 4. Much of Norfolk rests on the skeletons of billions of tiny plankton, which went on to form chalk. Number 5. Our famous flints were made from the skeletal parts of ancient sea sponges. Number 6. Norfolk is in the newest and lowest part of Britain, with the fastest receding coastline. Number 7. People once lived on Doggerland between Norfolk and the Netherlands, now covered by the North Sea. Number 8. Native Norfolk wildlife half a million years ago included lions, wolves, bears, rhinos and mammoths. There are plenty of houses, so where are all the martins? By Robert Morgan, Norfolk Wildlife Trust Reserve Officer, EDP, 24th of the 4th, 23. My house bears scars, and like most scars, they mark trauma, or, as these scars do, physical loss. The scars are five horseshoe-shaped blotches of clay, embedded blemishes in the brickwork, and the last remaining evidence of former house martin nests. My neighbour, who has lived in the close since the 1970s, told me that every house had at least three nests under the eaves, and the back wall of his house once played host to seven nests. In an attempt to lure house martins back, I've installed three artificial nests, just where they formerly built their own little cup-like nests. I've even daubed fake droppings to make it look as if one is in use. House martins rarely use artificial nests, but it is supposed to encourage others to build real ones close by. The dummy nest cups have been up for six years, 
and not even one property viewing, but I'm still very much in the market for martins. Growing up in the suburbs of London, the swallow wasn't a bird we would generally see. It was the house martin that brought us tides of spring and they were quite common too. Wearing a uniform that's much smarter and cleaner cut than the swallows, this compact little bird has a blue-black head, wings and tail, which contrasts neatly with their pure white rump and belly. Every other house on the estate had a nest tucked under the eave, and I'd watch them drop from their nests like an arrow and then dart back and swoop after flying insects. I imagined them as little spitfires in a dogfight. The local Victorian-built hospital near my childhood home had well over 100 pairs of house martins. The building has now been demolished and it is only hopeful speculation that they all found somewhere else to nest. This isn't just an urban decline. The warden's house at Norfolk Wildlife Trust's reserve at Hickling Broad once accommodated 17 martin nests. Little has changed to the accommodation on offer here, but there hasn't been a nesting attempt in 10 years. At this point, I'd normally say something positive or suggest a clever solution. Unfortunately, I can't. Widespread declines in house martin numbers have been reported across central and northern Europe. The house martin's tanned cousin, the sand martin, seems to be holding its numbers. This is where human activities have benefited wildlife, as old gravel workings provide the sandy banks in which they burrow out nest cavities. Old gravel extraction sites will often have flooded pits too, which are great for the martins, for insects. The sand martin is slightly smaller, grey-brown above with a pale belly and chin. Its main identification feature is a well-marked brown breastband. The soft sand cliffs of North Norfolk provide their natural habitat for nesting and some nationally important colonies can be found from Hunstanton round to Sheringham. Norfolk Coastal Defence Work prompted a contractor to string netting across a favourite Martin cliff face to stop the returning birds from nesting. Unsurprisingly, it resulted in a public relations disaster, so the netting was taken down and work commenced after the last fledging left its nest. It turns out that a clever solution wasn't required, only some common sense and decency. Fortunately, most Norfolk folk feel there is something distasteful about going to great efforts to stop birds nesting in spring. April is when the bulk of martins and their hirundine colleagues, the swallow, arrive back in the UK. I recall working on a boat in the middle of Nor Norfolk Wildlife Trust's Ranworth Broad when hundreds of house and sand martins dropped in during migration. They were in a feeding frenzy on the alder and Michaelmas flies that were swarming around the broad. All around us they displayed their wonderful acrobatic flying skills. For an hour they were there with us, and then they were gone. These martins, like many of our breeding birds, were returning to us after spending the winter in sub-Saharan Africa. This is becoming an increasingly perilous journey, not only is the desert becoming an expanding obstacle, mist netting on both sides of the Mediterranean is trapping millions of birds each spring and autumn. 
Although this activity is illegal in EU countries, it still seems to continue unabated. All the more reason to provide this little bird with shelter for those that do reach our shores. Wildlife gardening for insects and wildflowers is a great way of helping garden birds and you can go one step further to help our summer migrants by providing nest boxes for house martins, swifts and a variety of other cavity nesting birds. It is really special when you get the chance to watch birds feeding and raising young at close hand. For more information on building and installing swift boxes, as well as many other wildlife-friendly actions that you can take home, visit www.wildlifetrusts.org forward slash actions. Lots of excitement over petrol pumps from days gone by, writes Mike Hicks. I'm sure collecting is probably nostalgia. There are things you remember from years ago and you wish you had one now because the one you had was given away by your mum or it got broken. So you're looking for something to take its place. The most popular one like that is the teddy bear and teddy bears never cease to be out of demand. They're always wanted for one reason or another. I can remember I had a teddy bear once when I was very young and I'd grown out of it by teenage years. But mine was given away to a sibling and I never got it back. But I haven't sought to replace it, I must admit. But I'm sure this does happen. But there seems to be no depth to what people will go to to recapture the nostalgia. Today, there must be more than 50 million people on the road in the UK in some form of vehicle or another. So over the years, you've been to the garage to fill up with fuel hundreds of times. Have you ever got nostalgic about a petrol pump? Well, a lot of people have. And believe me, automobilia, as it's called, and petrolania also has attracted vast numbers of enthusiasts. It's not even the people who collect vintage cars. It is the people who just remember the petrol pumps. The ones with those wonderful glass globes on the top pronouncing Shellmex or Esso. Many of the brands were immortalised with the various advertising campaigns they had, none greater than Esso's Put a Tiger in Your Tank. I'm sure most people of a certain age will remember that. It appears that collectors are looking, as always, for the obscure I had never heard of Hancock petrol, Marathon petrol or National petrol. So many different ones which are put on the forecourts of garages. And it's these small independent firms who either got swallowed up by the big boys or faded into the distance if they couldn't keep up.
These are petrol pumps that date back to the early 20th century, say around 1910, with strange skeletonized machines, which were probably hand-pumped to get your fuel. Later on, they became much more sophisticated. We had BP Super, we had Caltex, we had Shell. All these different people were advertising their wares as well as delivering the fuel. Recently, quite a lot got sold from a collection and I was amazed to see the prices of these machines that can no longer be used but just put in somebody's garden or garage as a reminder of how things were. Of those items that got sold recently, a very strange one there, known as a Wayne model number 276, with a hand-cranked pump, and was produced between 1915 and 1957, this made £2,000, and it looked pretty scruffy for that sort of money. A BP petrol pump advertising four-star BP Super made 1750 And of course, along with all of this, goes the advertising signs, which are always a favourite. So, if you fancied being reminded of the petrol pump that you used many, many, many years ago, they are on the market, and you can buy them. I don't think they'd look very good in the front room, but nevertheless, people do get very excited when they come up for sale. And this article is illustrated with photographs of many of the old petrol pumps described. Talk is cheap and getting cheaper all the time by Martin Newell. I have related how, having half listened to a radio programme about lost working-class voices, I'd concluded that I might well be the owner of one. Only after I'd finished the piece, having written about life in the terrace cottage where my mother's family lived, did I realise that I'd left out an important aspect of the matter of class. This concerns the way in which we speak. During the last 60 years or so, despite huge societal changes, the old British class structures, though somewhat battered, remain roughly in place. It is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him, said the playwright George Bernard Shaw. The class barriers which I encountered as a child were not unique, but they were unusual. It was whispered in the family that my granddad, a bus driver, was punching above his weight when he married my grandmother, whose own family had kept a hardware shop. The couple had two daughters. My grandmother believed that if the girls spoke well, they would do well. I remember that both my mother and her sister had beautiful speaking voices, not as affectedly posh as, say, Celia Johnson in the film Brief Encounter, but still pretty classy for two lasses brought up in a terrace cottage with a bog out in the back porch. Their training did them well. When their respective husbands rose through the ranks to be commissioned as army officers, 
neither young woman was intimidated by the potential minefield of the officer's mess. A problem arose, however, when my mother, adopting the same methods as her own mother, passed the art of speaking well on to me, her eldest son. She stressed the importance of my sounding my T's and not dropping my H's. That I was also a bookish boy with an advanced vocabulary for my age did me no favours whatsoever. As I moved from school to school, eleven schools in all, I was called posh by other kids and sometimes misconstrued as impertinent by certain teachers. This was especially so when I attended schools in Scotland, then later in the north of England. My younger brother, always more street smart than I was, would simply adopt the local accent wherever we went. He was accepted. I struggled somewhat. I just wasn't tough enough. Sometimes I fought back. If I ever won a fight, they just got me back later, harder. Defeated, I simply gave up, retreating instead to an introverted world of books. Until finally, at my last school, a South London comprehensive, I reinvented myself, adopted a sloppy South London accent, and forsook my studies for an obsession with pop music. I left school, aged 15, with no exams taken, and did a series of dead-end jobs. Thanks to this, I received a crystal-clear close-up of the narrow-minded, willfully ignorant, and frankly, cruel working classes from which I'd sprung. I'd learned that whether working in factory or farm, best to never betray the fact that you ever read books, or that you formed any opinions other than those gleaned from those tabloids favoured by the terminally thick. Best not speak too much at all, in fact, because as Shaw suggested, it is your speech by which they will condemn you. Not that the disdainful English middle classes will accept you any more readily, because if you don't keep up with the same risable fads as them, the Tibetan pink salt of it all, they will instinctively know you aren't one of them. In fact, with no academic credits, if you really want to get out from under the class system, your traditional options will usually include sport, crime, popular music, or comic entertainment. If you can earn yourself a bit of money and fame, it doesn't matter how you speak, does it? Because you've just kicked all the doors down. Decades later, how has our speech changed? Well, perversely, the boot now seems to be on the other foot. Everyone from BBC radio presenters up to young royalty is frantically running to keep up with estuarine speech modes. You hear it everywhere. I'm going home, I heard a BBC news reader say recently as she slummed it with the drive-time DJ. An entire swathe of our professional classes have now traded in their hard tees for glottal stops. It's unconvincing, though. Sometimes there's no disguising those strangulated vowels as they chirrup. Yup, absolutely. Meanwhile, back in the Badlands, the word on the street is, almost completely devoid of consonants, actually, if the young middle classes are dropping a few consonants, then the young working classes have upped their game by expunging them altogether. Much conversations nowadays consist of long mumbled slurs punctuated by expletives and finished on an ascending note as a question, 
Girls now call each other mate, while the boys call each other buddy. It's ugly and infuriating to listen to. But then, that is like the job of the youth in it. Time to start having fun with the English language again, by Keith Skipper. I turned in early the other evening to mull over a few of life's mysteries. Like, when is last night of the proms really going to mean it? If a pig loses its voice, is it disgruntled? And is multitasking an ability to muck everything up simultaneously? Sleep arrived well before any sensible answers, but at least I've been spared one more television programme featuring endless repeats for the famous five. Actually, awesome, brilliant, fantastic, and gutted. So many words and expressions to pick from. So little regard for any idea of a linguistic adventure. Now footballers dress up as politicians and vice versa, on a level playing field with banal sound bites, the only goal, and too much extra time to waste. Yes, if the English language made any sense, a catastrophe would be an apostrophe with fur. Even so, there's no excuse for many blatant abuses it has to suffer. Perhaps we add to this growing chaos inspired by a voracious media. For a start, we watch Parliament elect a speaker when there are about 650 of them in there, already mostly talking a load of old squit. We call it a rush hour when nothing moves. We know fast food tends to slow us down. No wonder rubbish has passed off as reality on our television screens. It creeps into more homely areas as well. I recall a few years back when Chroma Smugglers picked up an Unsung Heroes Community Award. But that's what they did all the while. Sing. We must take better care of our language before it drowns in a vat of clichés, that's for sure, or disappears in a storm of texting, twittering and mobile phone twaddle. Norfolk could lead the way by not holding a conference on the subject. There's no point in a gathering of important people who singly can do nothing, but together can decide that nothing can be done. Far better to get back to individual basics and spend an hour or two with a good dictionary and a willingness to take liberties in the name of a word's revival. I take my cue from a comedian and writer Barry Cryer, a master of alternate suggestions. He reckoned Honolulu meant to give an MBE to a Scottish singer, and I'm still happy to take his word for it. Then I stumbled across Dickensian, used to describe snow at Christmas or very long novels. I remember a lad at school lighting up a dull English language lesson by announcing his father always refused to pay syntax. That did it. A rustic stalwart emerged from my early newspaper reporting days to describe growing excitement over his local garden show as wisteria. 
a fashion-conscious colleague in the swinging 1960s, informed me baloney was where some hemlines fell. I owned up to harbouring a belief that absentee is a missing golf peg and aromatic an autopilot for archers. A medical source informed me dilate meant to live longer and an outpatient just a person who had fainted. A friend good with numbers suggested extradition totted up to more maths homework while morbid could only be a higher offer. Up popped the dentist to bill toothache as the pain that drives you to extraction. An honest planner, a rare breed, admitted suburbia is where they tear out the trees and plants and then name streets after them. Welcome to Ash Grove and Primrose Drive. Fun and word games with serious purpose. Where would it all end? With a top 20 compiled with help from a witty man I often meet on my clifftop rambles in loquacious chroma, try these for size. Archive. Where Noah kept his bees. Flabbergasted. Appalled by discovering how much weight one has gained. Esplanade. To attempt an explanation while drunk. Balderdash. Rapidly receding hairline. Flatulence. Emergency vehicle that picks up someone run over by a steamroller. Idiomatic. Foolproof dishwasher. Allocate. How some greet the Duchess of Cambridge. Hoedown. Agricultural strike. Forebears. Scare for Goldilocks. Demystifier. Retired magician. Endorse. Loser in Grand National. Dullard. Boring duck. Foxglove. Basil brush. Dreadlocks. Fear of canals. Shuttlecock. Space chicken. Stylist. Pig directory. Buffalo. Popular nudist camp greeting. Fondue. An affectionate sheep. Hiding. Church bell you can't reach. Cursory. Where small children learn to swear. We're coming to the end of this edition of the magazine. If you have any comments to make, please contact Georgette on 01953 605 434. You can also contact us on, from our website, www.watn.org.uk. The music stops, remove the memory stick from the machine and rotate it back into its protective cover. Place the memory stick and its key fob inside the wallet and return it to us in due course as soon as possible. The next magazine will be the Christmas edition in December. So until then, it's goodbye from all of us on the magazine team. Goodbye. Goodbye.